1: Hi, shalom, hallo, Marhaba, strassi Fellow podcasters, welcome to the Future Positive Podcast, a show from XPRIZE that brings you the most future-forward topics, covering everything from AI to climate change and more. For many indigenous communities, passing down the knowledge to the next generation is critical for cultural survival. The preservation of these cultures has traditionally been done through the study and documentation of languages, traditions, and rituals. In today's episode, we'll start by hearing Burr Settles, head of research and AI at Duolingo, and then go into a discussion between Davar Ardalan, AI writer Chamisa Ademo, Alva Lim from Agora Food Studio, AI researcher Victor Yola, and Tracy Monte, senior software engineer at Microsoft who spent 20 years putting the Cherokee language in Microsoft Word. Our guests will dive into the role AI can play in helping ensure that our collective knowledge, histories, and cultures will be around for generations to come. Let's get started.
2: It's a pleasure to be with everybody, and I'm excited to talk about how we're using AI at Duolingo to teach the world languages, and particularly... um, to preserve languages through teaching various indigenous languages. We have had several efforts over the last few years that I'll be talking about. But first of all, since I'm coming to you from Pittsburgh, the city of bridges, there are more than 400 bridges in the city of Pittsburgh. I I wanna convince you that language shapes the mind, the way we think about the world. And one good scientific example of this uh, is a study that was done in 2002, showing that if you ask native German speakers Well, first of all, consider that the word for bridge in German, die Brücke, is a feminine word. Whereas in Spanish, it's el puente, which is a masculine word. And if you ask native German or Spanish speakers to describe a bridge, to come up with adjectives for a bridge, the German speakers will come up with things like beautiful, elegant, and peaceful, things that are stereotypically feminine pronouns. Whereas Spanish speakers will say strong and sturdy and towering. And just before you think that maybe there's something going on with just maybe Spanish speakers are more macho and come up with more masculine sounding words, you get the opposite effect for other words, like the word for key, German speakers would say hard and heavy and jagged, whereas Spanish speakers would say golden or intricate and lovely. So linguistic concepts such as grammatical gender influence the way that we think about these objects, and it influences the way we interpret the world. So here's a completely different example. The Gugu Yathmir language in Australia, uh, an indigenous language, the, the people there, when you talk about direction, cardinality, I would say this is my right shoulder, but in this particular region of Australia, this is my north shoulder. The description of my body parts or any object, direction isn't tied to me, as it is in most Western languages, it's tied to the land, the landscape itself. So cardinal direction is so baked into the culture and therefore the mindsets. There have been studies to show that these people, more so than uh, speakers of other languages, just have an intuitive compass, a sense of direction. In fact, I, I think in this language, if you say, hello, you You literally ask which direction are you going and then the answer is something like north-northwest how about you so you literally can't get past hello without knowing which direction you're pointing in addition there's evidence that bilingualism or studying other languages improves cognitive function and can delay diseases like alzheimer's and also that learning multiple languages is associated with greater empathy and social awareness so These are just a few of the reasons that we created Duolingo a few years ago. The fact that the languages shape your worldview and can be beneficial both for you as individuals and society as a whole. So we started Duolingo in 2012. It was a Carnegie Mellon research project here in Pittsburgh. Today, there are more than 300 million learners across the world learning languages. We have 90 courses, uh, including the teaching Irish which is an indigenous language or Esperanto, which is a constructed language. And all of the learning content is free. I'll give you a little crash course in it just in case you're not familiar with Duolingo. So it is an app and a website that is a game-like curriculum for learning languages. So we have these lessons that are grouped into skills by topics. So those topics can be thematic like phrases or uh, introductory phrases or travel or restaurants. Uh, Or they could be also grammatical topics to teach you the case system of a particular language, etc. And learners complete these skills to unlock more rows. So this is how we implement mastery learning. And in order to progress through the course, you have to complete all of the skills above it. And then we also encourage users to practice what they've already learned to go back. And I'll talk about some of the technology we use to improve learning through that. And then there are other gamified motivators and metrics like in-app currencies and leaderboards and things like that. So a brief word about AI and Duolingo in general, you you talk about AI going into any kind of field and people get a little shaky. Uh, And our goal here is obviously not to replace great teachers. The best way to learn a language, because language also is so intertwined with culture, uh, the best way to learn a language is to talk with people and to be immersed in it and to to learn the words and the customs and the traditions of the people who speak that language. But until everybody in the world has equal access to great teachers, which is kind of a stretch, we believe that AI is the best way to scale this one-on-one private tutor experience to everybody. And when you think about why a private language tutor or a group of dedicated people to practice with, why they're so effective, I argue that they have three properties. One is that they know the material really well. They know the language, they know the ins and outs of it, the nuances of it and the culture. They know how to keep you engaged and excited about the material. And perhaps most importantly, they know how to get inside your head because you have this dedicated face-to-face time with them. They they can get an intuitive sense of what you know, what you don't know, what you struggle with, uh, and then use that to their advantage to engage you with the right material at the right time. So I'll dive a little deeper into how uh, we use this at Duolingo. So we have a statistical AI model that learns what learners know and how well they know it. Since we have 300 million people doing half a billion uh, lessons every single day, we've got a giant database of individuals' interactions with different linguistic concepts like words and vocabulary. And this is personalized for each student and adapts over time as they learn more. So, how this works harkens back to something called the spacing effect, uh, which is more than a century old. And it's the idea that people learn better if practice is spaced over long intervals. Instead of cramming, you come back to the things periodically to practice. And then there's a related concept called the lag effect, which is that people learn better if the spacing gradually increases over time. Or in other words, the half-life increases with more practice. And the way we implemented this at Duolingo at the beginning was this, uh, a flashcard system that went back to the 1970s where you had a box, the one day box, the two day box, the four day box. And if you got it right, you moved it from the one day box to the two day box and the next time to the four day box. But if you got it wrong, you demoted it. And then we noticed that this is actually can be formalized as an equation of two to the number of times you've gotten it right minus the number of times you've gotten it wrong which you could then generalize into two, to the power of a dot product of any arbitrary thing you could think of. What is the word? Who is the user? You know, is this a noun? Is it a verb? Is it an adjective? Is it an interjection? And then learn weights uh, empirically from the record of millions of users getting uh, billions of exercises correct and incorrect. And all of these go into what we call half-life regression, which is a novel AI algorithm that we uh, proposed in 2016. We collected a bunch of log data and our method uh, using this machine learning, this half-life regression specific memory focused machine learning method was significantly better than other existing schedules, space and heuristics, as well as other off the shelf AI baselines like logistic regression. Uh, and then when we put this into practice, something that we do at Duolingo with everything, we run controlled experiments. So half of the users will get control, which in this case was the old flashcard algorithm. Uh, And then half of the users will get the new AI model under the hood. And then in this case, we ran this experiment for two weeks. There were 3 million students, and we saw a 12% boost in engagement, people continuing to come back and learn languages the next day uh, after having used the app the day before. And when we put these models into deployment, I would like to think that has something to do with the increased growth we've seen over the years, making Duolingo basically the number one language learning platform online. We've also released several peer reviewed research articles, uh, as well as data sets. The data set that we use to fit the model I just described is publicly available and lots of uh, other researchers have been building on that work and continuing to publish on it. There's also an interesting dynamic with the way that Duolingo is structured where users have a choice in that they could choose to plow through the course. Let me back up for a second because I'm not sure I explained this earlier. When you do a skill, initially all of the content is at an easy sort of level. And then when you go back and practice it, it gradually gets harder and harder. So this is again part of the adaptive algorithms. And so users have a choice whether or not the material they've already learned, whether they want to keep repeating it to go deeper into those skills, or do they want to keep everything easy and plow straight ahead? Uh, We call them the candy crushers. Those are the people, maybe they don't actually care about learning a language very much. Uh, It's a fun distraction. But then there are all of these other people on the opposite end of the spectrum, which we assume, uh, we call them strivers because it's really important for them to engage with the material and learn the language and they're in it for the long haul. And interestingly, if you look geographically where these people are distributed, the candy crushers are mostly in developed countries, and the strivers are mostly in in developing countries. There's kind of this dynamic, not entirely, but there is this dynamic that you you start to see. And interestingly, also, if you look at the distribution of where our revenue comes from uh, through subscription services and and things, um, again, all of the learning content is free. they are just kinds of fun game-like bonuses and power-ups that you can purchase. And that is how we make 90% of our revenue. So essentially we have people in developed countries using Duolingo for fun, who are subsidizing free education for people in largely in developing countries who are learning languages to improve their socioeconomic situation uh, or re-engage with their indigenous culture. So just some examples of who is learning on Duolingo. There's a wide variety of people from all over the world. Bill Gates is learning French. The the San Jose Earthquakes, uh, it's a, a soccer or football team, depending on where you're from. The manager is Argentinian and speaks Spanish. The rest of the team speaks English. They're using Duolingo to learn each other's languages to function better as a team. And interestingly, the number one language to learn in Sweden is Swedish. And the number one language to learn in many United States cities like Miami is English. It's uh, largely refugee uh, and immigrant populations. But it's, it's not just refugees. Again, there's all kinds of people learning all kinds of languages for all kinds of reasons. And so a few years ago, we started getting involved with creating courses for minority indigenous languages. And even today, when you ask, we have a, a survey of why people are learning languages on Duolingo. And most most people, it's, uh, they say it's for work or for school, or maybe they're traveling. But when you ask the learners of the indigenous language courses that we teach, they are 1.3 times more likely to say it because of family, and two and a half times more likely to say Uh, because of culture. Now, we don't know if this is to reconnect with their own culture or to learn more about uh, the surrounding culture, but these are some striking statistically significant differences between the overall population of language learners. That's interesting. So we started down this journey in 2016 where where we were approached by uh, some actually High schoolers who were native Irish speakers who just wanted—they loved Duolingo. They had been using it to learn French, and they—they they just wanted to help us create an Irish course. So today there are more than a million active learners, and by active learners I mean people who've done a lesson in the last week. Uh, there are a million active learners relative to a hundred or two hundred thousand native speakers in Ireland. We actually were given an award by the president of Ireland for the preservation of the Irish language. Uh, we followed that up shortly afterward with Welsh, and today there are about a half a million Welsh learners, uh, mostly concentrated uh, in the UK. We also later that year worked with the Peace Corps to develop a language for uh, a course to teach Guarani, uh, which is a native South American language largely spoken in Bolivia, Paraguay, uh, Argentina, and, and somewhat in Brazil, I believe. And interestingly, this is most of the languages that we where all of the courses that we teach on Duolingo are pairs of language. So they assume somebody is coming into it speaking English, for example, and wants to learn Irish as an English speaker. Guarani is actually uh, one of the few courses where you can't actually learn it as an English speaker. Uh, it's a course to teach Spanish speakers Guarani. A few years later, we decided we wanted to start the practice of releasing an endangered language a new endangered language course on Indigenous Peoples Day uh, every year, and so we, our first year of doing this was in 2018, where we did a double header of launching Hawaiian and Navajo. So each of these have you know, hundreds of thousands of learners and more learners than there are native speakers of the language, which garnered you know lots of coverage and started this kind of narrative about how these online language courses can preserve the language and the culture of the people, to which Alistair Allen, who's a member of Scottish Parliament, actually petitioned Duolingo to create a Scots Gaelic uh, course, which uh, we did uh, for our, our major release last year. So again, almost uh, half a million active learners uh, of Scottish Gaelic, mostly in the UK and the United States. Uh, And we're currently working on several more, Kichi and Yucatec are two Mayan languages, uh, which we're creating again for Spanish speakers to learn uh, those languages. Uh, Maori is under development, uh, Haitian Creole and Yiddish. And your definition of an indigenous language uh, can vary. There are also other languages that we teach like Swahili in the course as well. And so we'd not only use AI to Adapt uh, and to to make teaching more efficient. We also use AI to help facilitate the development of the courses. Uh, and one way of doing that is if you answer a question that you got wrong, but you think you're correct, you can submit a report. But only about 10% of those reports are actually wrong. So we get about a half a million of these every week. So the the volunteers who create the courses and maintain them don't really have time to look at all of them. So We use AI to rank order them, essentially, like here are some prompts in Navajo, here are the suggested uh, English translations as part of the lesson, here are the number of reports and the probability that that particular translation is correct according to our our AI models. And even though all of these uh, languages have very few linguistic resources to train the AI models, they're actually good enough to be useful in speeding up the development of these courses. Uh, historically, once we created a new course, it took about six months to graduate from beta, and Scott's Gaelic, which is one of the first courses to use this AI model after we put it into production, only took five weeks to hit that benchmark. I, I wanted to leave you with this quote from Clayton Long, who, was, who spearheaded, uh, reached out to us about creating the Navajo course. Uh, he said, this collaboration was a dream come true because it reaches young people, makes them the leaders, but also exposes the world to our language and our stories in a way that I could never have accomplished. Uh, And so with that, I will pause.
0: Thank you, Burr. We learned so much from you. Looking forward to following up as well. I'm joining you from Washington DC during a very historic time. Uh, not just in our nation, in the United States, but all over the world, and never been a more uh, pertinent time to be able to talk about how we can preserve our culture and whether artificial intelligence can be a tool in that way, uh, as Burr has also mentioned. So uh, our startup is called IVOW, and that stands for Intelligent Voices of Wisdom. We are an Amazon, Activate, and Neo4j startup. And uh, thank you to uh, Ahmad at AI for Good, as well as Amir bani Fatemi and Anusha Ansari at XPRIZE for bringing us into the AI for Good family. And so for the past three or four months, uh, we have been getting together every two weeks with Victor Yarlett, Alva Lim, Tracy Montaith, uh, Chamisa Etmo, Kimaleski, uh, Nikki McClay, and uh, bringing together the idea of an indigenous knowledge. Really, as Tracy says, We need a global denominator of perspectives that becomes more inclusive and valuable with each and every contribution. The way tribal people think globally is muted, even though our first voices are indistinguishable from the natural order of the earth. You will be hearing from Tracy in a moment. He is a senior software engineer at Microsoft, a member of the Eastern Band Cherokee, and he spent 20 years putting the Cherokee language into Microsoft Word. It is the only Native American language that is in Microsoft Word. Uh, We will also be hearing from Victor Yarlett. Victor is a PhD student at Florida International University. He is joining us from Miami. And Victor uh, did his MIT project on the Genesis understanding system at MIT. And he was able to prove that he was able to put his Crow literature from his Crow Native American tribe into the MIT Genesis understanding system and allow the system to understand stories other than those from a European-American background. So we're grateful to have Victor here. And Alva Lim is here. She is joining from Sydney, Australia. Uh, She is uh, co-founder of the Timor-Leste Food Lab and a brilliant woman who has done incredible work in the area of food and sustainability. Uh, Very much looking forward to having her as well. And Chamisa Edmo is a Navajo woman joining us from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, She is a developer technologist. She was a conversational writer for Sophia the Robot. And she talks about the importance of finding new technologies to be able to capture our oral traditions. So I would be remiss if I didn't say you'll also be meeting Siri. She is our AI. She is a young AI developed by journalists, uh, Kim Molesky, Robert Molesky, and also Nisa McCoy. So I'm going to now uh, turn it over and ask our panelists, and that would be Tracy, Victor, Alva, and Chamisa to take a minute each to introduce themselves. Tracy Monte.
3: Hi. Thanks, uh, Devar. Uh, my name is Tracy Monteith, uh, as mentioned, I'm Eastern Band Cherokee, and I'm um, speaking to you from our farm outside of Seattle, Washington, as I, uh, I call it the Good Washington. So the one thing I want to mention is Eastern Band Cherokee, we're the Cherokee that are still on our ancestral lands, and we've been there for over 3,000 years. Um, with that, I'll go ahead and you can hand it over.
0: Thank you so much. Victor?
3: Hey, I'm Victor
4: Yarlett. I'm down here in Miami, Florida doing my PhD at Florida International University looking at how we can detect certain cultural elements within stories. Uh, I graduated from 2014 from MIT with my bachelor's and master's. My master's thesis was focused on how we can allow story understanding systems trained primarily on Western, European, and American data on native cultures and get that story understanding system to be able to actually extract useful and interesting information from stories that are from these lesser known cultures and uh, non-Eurocentric cultures. And basically I'm very deeply interested in how culture affects uh, not only how we read stories, but how we write stories and how we can enable machines to derive value from that.
0: Thank you so much. And let's go to Chamisa. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you, Devar, for introducing us. Um, I'm in
5: Albuquerque, and um, I'm an enrolled member of the Navajo Nation. And I'm also Blackfeet and Shoshone bannock As Devar said, I worked at Hanson Robotics, and it was there that I really became interested in how AI can be used as a tool to bring culture and how the social responsibility we have as developers and technologists to develop technologies that are
6: representative
5: and diverse.
6: Great, and Alva? Hi, everyone. It's a real pleasure to to be here. I'm Alva, the founder of the Timor-Leste Food Lab. Myself and our team of cooks, chefs, food storytellers, local food champions, we've pioneered intergenerational food storytelling exchanges where traditional knowledge is shared from older generation to younger generation whose food habits are changing. And so what we're trying to do is, is with the honour of being able to document um, these visual images and videos of traditional food, recipes, techniques, we want this, we, we really believe this knowledge needs to be preserved and, and also shared. It's a responsibility that we feel, but also that this knowledge is heard. Uh, When we're talking about trying to achieve the sustainable sustainable development goals and we're designing programs on nutrition or agriculture or sustainable livelihoods to develop programs and co-create them with the community using their own local indigenous knowledge, we will create more effective programs that will achieve and scale up the sustainable development goals. So it's really exciting to, to be part of this project. Um, we see the potential for AI in both those aspects of preserving knowledge, but also co-creating new food knowledge as well across different communities.
0: Thank you so much. I wanted to ask, beginning with Chamisa, what does it mean to you to be able to have a tool like this, an Indigenous knowledge graph and a conversational AI that can continue telling the stories of your family in new ways?
5: Yeah, I think it's really empowering. Um, Personally, I've had a really enjoyable, enjoyable experience um, contributing to this uh, project overall. And I think there's a huge opportunity for this technology to create opportunities for other people, younger people, to um, really connect to their culture and bring it forward in a meaningful way that's accessible for others.
0: Thank you. And Tracy, I know we're going to be going to uh, you to talk specifically more about your work with the Cherokee and AI, but could you maybe briefly reflect on what it felt like to have a conversational AI share a recipe that you had generously shared with us?
3: I think it was one of the first, uh, and actually to be able to hear uh, AI bot. Try to speak Cherokee. I, I thought um, was was really uplifting for me. I remember the first translation that I actually uh, did uh, with AI in Cherokee, and and I re- remember the phrasing exactly. So this is just a moment in time for us, and and a and a way of sort of going forward, not only for our current peoples but also uh, future.
0: And Victor, you are an AI scientist. This is your bread and butter. Can you share a little bit more about, you know, a year ago, we were talking about cultural engines, and here we are today, actually showing the foundations for one, and the idea that as humans, we learn story, we learn about our cultures through the stories that our parents tell us, and uh, machines have zero knowledge, and therefore, why can't we teach machines also through our stories? If you could expand on that.
4: Sure. So... As as Devar said, machines do start from zero knowledge. Machines don't have a a sense of cultural awareness on their own. And it may seem obvious to us as humans, as people who are deeply embedded in language, but a machine doesn't have that knowledge. And something like the indigenous knowledge graph, having these SDGs as part of the, the information within it provides additional context for any intelligent agent that wants to know more about the world and know more about the cultures that it interacts with.
0: Thank you so much. Um, Alva Lim, you have done a remarkable job with your work with the Timor-Leste Food Lab, and also you created a fascinating dashboard where you were actually able to show the correlation between the indigenous food that you were eating based on the seasons and the sustainable development goals. Briefly tell us about that and how you could see an iteration of the indigenous knowledge graph that would be uh, very informative in terms of its relation to sustainable development
6: goals. Thank you, Tava. So we also developed an online uh, impact dashboard that allowed people to see how their food choices had an impact, both in terms of the investment back into the local agricultural economy, so people buy local, that goes back into farmers and households locally instead of always buying imported food. Importation in Timor-Leste, like many other countries, of imported food is, is quite high. And so having a dashboard helps people to see that the food choices do matter. And I think sometimes we we forget that how, how much food our food choices the repercussions, but both in terms of the negative, but also want to focus on the the opportunity. There's there's a multiplier effect that can happen. And I think uh, a dashboard like that for the indigenous knowledge graph, I think could be very useful in terms of also learning about how we can create innovative solutions to achieve the sustainable development goals, but also then to continue to adapt and learn from some of the the traditional knowledge. So I, I see it as traditional knowledge being powered by AI, there is a lot of sensitivities about how we protect uh, some of this this knowledge. And I think there is a lot already that exists out there in terms of food knowledge that is shared. So how can we make sure that, that knowledge is shared with other people and that it can create these solutions that benefit everybody?
0: Thank you so much. Uh, Tracy, we're going to hand it over to you. So please take it away.
3: Thanks, Tavar. Think about your formative years when you were young and what, if you think back in time was the most important moments in, in uh, that, that part of your life. I will share with you that I have two. One was, well, I was 12 years old, I sang in a boys choir and uh, got to take a trip to Washington DC where I, I spent time in um, the Smithsonian, specifically the Museum of Natural History. As in the old museum, as you go left, you go through and you find the the primitive peoples of the Americas. And for me, uh, this this was a moment where I I realized something was not not quite right, because you come out of that room and the next thing that you see is a dinosaur. And so, because uh, some of the mannequins that were used actually look like people, Uh, that had helped to raise me. I was fortunate enough to know people that were actually born in the uh, late 1800s. And so when I see these people and I think about dinosaurs, I knew it was uh, an an extinction uh, concept. I I didn't really process that till much later. The next aspect is um, my mother uh, was a teacher, now she's retired, And she was able to bring home um, a a PC, uh, was one of the earliest ones um, from an Apple, actually Apple IIe. And I was 17 years old by then and had a screwdriver. So you do what every 17 year old does, which is take things apart, put them back together. Uh, and then there was one little booklet, and no one really to talk to about what it was, um, how to use it, or anything. But there's one little booklet with basic, and I burned through it um, uh, in a very hungry way. And uh, and then I noticed there were some characters that started to look like the Cherokee language. We have a written language; it's 200 years old in terms of the written part, and it's a spoken language; it's about 3,500 years old. So when I started seeing these symbols, some of them, uh, you know, faintly resembled some of our Cherokee uh, syllabary. That's when I decided that it it very well might be a useful tool for language, language preservation, specifically our syllabary. So I spent basically um, my entire career chasing that concept and what it taught me along the way, it, it gave me the, the persistence to actually learn how things work inside of computers and how software works and then how could we possibly do this? So I spent decades, as I I mentioned, in figuring out um, all the bits and pieces along the way, skilled up, I got hired by a a company called Microsoft. And at that point, I started reaching out to others and that's when things started going faster uh, forward. Eventually, uh, with thousands upon thousands of emails and a lot of conversations, uh, we settled on that it was uh, something that we could actually put in the operating system, and more importantly, Word and all of the Office apps, so that we could actually create content for our um, learning for our our students. We have immersion schools now, um, and they're all based on uh, that learning content, and it was basically a tool set that we needed in order to actually help others use modern means of learning to uh, learn their native language. So from there, uh, it was a natural progression for me um, because we started printing our our language and had a bilingual newspaper uh, by um, uh, 1828. And if you think about that, then it's an an exception uh, and the acceptance of a technology For me, AI is the next extension of that and um, I had built a prototype with machine learning and then I had followed that with a prototype um, with AI uh, as the main engine and got terrific fidelity uh, for our translations. So that's what I'm continuing to work on and that's uh, a portion of our story.
0: Just so incredibly inspiring. Thank you so much, Tracy. Um, Chamisa, I know that you and I were both writers for Sophia the Robot, uh, built out of Hanson Robotics. And one thing that's really fascinating about Sophia is that she has traveled to over 30 countries and uh, she has a camera on her. So everywhere she goes, she actually can see when people come up to her and talk to her. So when you talk about the future of robots and you have been part of the development of the AI and Uh, language and understanding of a robot, it's even more imperative that what we're doing gets fast-tracked, right, Chamisa? Because we actually wrote a lot of those scripts for Sophia in the early days, obviously, for her to know what country she's going to, potentially if there was a festival, how she should respond, and yet to think that we actually can use a knowledge graph to be able to have AIs like Sophia be a lot more you know, uh, quick and understand cultures better? What do you, what are some of your thoughts based on having worked with Sophia?
5: Yeah, definitely. I think um, just with the experience with Sophia, we worked a lot to research ahead of time and prepare the robot to um, perform, I guess, in these spaces. And if you build a brain, essentially, for a robot that already has all of these Um, nuances, cultural nuances, and even things that probably shouldn't be talked about, or you load in like an awareness of stories that are all public domain or things like that, it becomes a much more personalized experience for the user. It really like allows humans to connect on an intimate, a more emotionally and intellectually intimate level than they would normally be able to.
0: Absolutely. And you know, Gartner reports that by 2022, some 25% of interactions online will be done through virtual assistants. That's up from 2% currently, which means that we have a lot of work to do to make sure that these virtual assistants and chatbots are culturally relevant uh, so that we aren't in a situation where we wake up 10 years from now and the technology that exists does not look like us, does not sound like us. Myself, my background, my last name is Ardalan. I come from the Kurdish and also Bakhtiari ancestry. These are legendary tribes in Iran. Uh, I have not visited there since 1989. And yet uh, my language, my culture is part part and parcel of who I am. My mom, my dad, they have uh, nurtured so much in me in terms of my curiosity for cultural expression and my responsibility as a journalist and storyteller to make sure that these future tools embody world cultures in them as well. So we're just gonna uh, be wrapping up here soon. Uh, I wanna give just one minute, 30 seconds to one minute to all of the panelists for any final thoughts. Uh, I have a final thought to share. Uh, I met Alva Lim in Timor-Leste in a beautiful island nation, uh, probably three years ago. And when I was in Timor-Leste, I traveled to a village where 52% of the children had stunted growth, but I was there to record a sustainable garden Built by the women in the village. And one of the matriarchs of the the village was there. And I said to her, if I was ever to create a story about local Timorese ingredients and how they can help make your children healthier, uh, how would you even see that story? Like, how would you even watch it? So without skipping a beat, she said, we would have Facebook film nights on the smartphones of our teenagers. And I looked up and this village did not have running water or electricity, but 30 teenagers came up to me and followed me on Facebook. This is our opportunity because Sina can also be on Facebook as a bot, sharing the nurturing recipes and stories from Alva, from the Timor-Leste food uh, system into these communities around the world who have no other way of accessing information and for the most part are just like liking silly stuff on Facebook, okay? This is our responsibility. We listen to the people of these nations who themselves have amazing ways that we can integrate new technologies for them. So I'm gonna give a uh, last word, just 30 seconds, uh, Victor, Chamisa, uh, Tracy, and Alva. Victor.
4: I think I'd just like to say here at the end that I'm, I'm very excited because not only are they the step towards making culturally aware intelligent agents more possible? Because as Burr said, you know, AI is very data hungry. And the majority of data out there is sort of, you know, it's from, and especially available to AI researchers such as myself, it's from European or American sources. And, you know, the idea of having a repository that makes these lesser heard cultures more prominent and gives you access to that in order to broaden the base of these culturally aware systems is very exciting. But also the possibility of using these sorts of technologies to preserve cultures going forward. I think both of these possibilities are deeply exciting for me.
0: Thank you. Uh, Chamisa. Yeah, I'd just like
5: to say thank you for allowing us to be here to speak. And I'm also um, equally excited by these technologies and all the applications that haven't even been thought of yet. Um, I think one thing that bringing technologies to people and allowing these tools to be more representative and applicable in many different cultures outside of just a generalized, I guess, Western culture is that younger people will be able to use these technologies and build tools that we haven't even really thought of yet. So I think allowing that space and creating opportunities for younger people to engage with technology in a new way um, really is an exciting possibility.
0: Thank you, Uh, Tracy.
3: Yes, I wanted to highlight uh, that behind the scenes for all of the the work that uh, I have been shepherding uh, is elders and um, the youngest generation on smartphones and to watch this uh, have a common connection uh, between elders that know the language better and uh, younger people that seem to know the technology better. um, That Brought uh, the Cherokee people closer together, and if you think about how, how you know grand grandmother, grandfather talks to uh, a teenager, um, well, this created a common purpose. And so we saw this, we saw living wage jobs, we, we saw uh, still um, in, in, on, on the reservations, there are people that are full-time translators uh, just because of this uh, work and the work that we're continuing today. So the impact on the society and the hope and the promise and, and bringing people together uh, in ways that never really happened before was all due to work like this. And so that's the thing that excites me the most.
6: Thank you so much, Alva. Yeah, thank you for sharing that experience when you came to Timor, leste um, DeVar, You know, 70% of the population in Timor is under 30 years of age. About 40% of the population does use internet. It's probably that cohort that can afford or, or of age to use a phone. And on that, you know, 98% use social media and they use it pretty much on Facebook. Often, even to people often say, even to message ministers, you don't do it by phone. Um, you do it through a Facebook message and people respond to that. So this technology is being adopted. And currently what we've, and I can only speak from my experience, but maybe it resonates with others. But in Timberlaster, a lot of people do look at things and part of it is food and food recipes. But what they do see is what is populated right now. And what is populated in the food media world is, it's it's usually highly processed food. So you will have someone who's young and is promoting the brand of another company. And so I think there's, we have to be aware that there's also this dynamic where the younger generation think that traditional food is not sexy, it's poverty food, I don't want to eat it. And on the other hand, modern, to to aspire to modernity, um, we'll go on the internet and we'll eat and we'll see what people are eating online. And I think that if we can, we can use, it will help the younger generation to, to basically be proud of their own, their own local ingredients. In digital or not, you know, let's go beyond beyond that word. But it, basically, it's food, and how can we use more local food within our, our daily meals? And how can we make the younger generation really be attracted to that? And things like having a central repository of this information, where you can you can find all these different ways and techniques, complicated techniques with ingredients that, to be honest, you know, growing up in Sydney, I've never seen these these ingredients, and I have no idea how it's used because I all I know is how food is is presented to me in, 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 in plastic and a company tells me if I can eat it. And I think as practitioners working with farmers and community groups and women who explain to us about their food, there's so much pride there. And they often tell us, you know, our children don't want to eat this anymore. What can I do? And so we're basically just trying to create a more equitable ground in terms of the way people perceive food or the relationship to, to their traditional food. So I think, you know, this is why this, this excites me. Also, as a food lover, I just, I get so excited by the ingredients and techniques that that, that um, is learned. And I don't want that to be lost. Yes. Um, I want people to use it. Food is not something that should be in a, in a museum. Food has to be used. Food has to, to continue. The traditional food and techniques, people have to continue to use it. And so how can we do that if, if the future generations don't want to? So it it food is lived and we have to um keep using it.
0: Thank you so much, beautiful and profound. I want all of us to end with honoring our elders, and I would like to say something in Persian very quickly to my uh ancestors and parents. Mikhosan Fagat Ashhomotasha Kurkonam, Barayet Tamome, Jurikes and the Giamana Shirin Kardin, Ba Taumome Doneshi, Kibeman Yotoddin, Emruz Betunam, Taume in Kharora and Jombedam merci. Chamisa you go next
5: thank you for allowing us to be here great to meet everybody talk with everybody I'll go
0: victor
4: you know i just I just think it's very important that you know we do we do pay respect to the elders who have you know done their best to keep the traditions alive and I'm especially thankful to both of my parents uh, and to you know my my greater extended family and you know, all the support they've given me and all the help they've given me. Oh. Uh,
0: Tracy.
3: First, I want to thank everyone on the panel. It's been great working with you and Devar for organizing this. Um, we don't have a word for goodbye in Cherokee, but we do have a concept of uh, until I see you again. And so uh, what I'm about to say is thank you and, and until I see you again. And we sort of mean that kind of no matter if you're in this world or the next. So, so shki.
6: And Alva, so I'll share it in the uh, the Tetun language, the national language of Timor Leste. Obrigado, <speaking> obrigado paraque. Itenia ahan mac itenia identidade. Ba baiala sira obrigado paraque ba fahé fahé itenia iteniarai itenia ahan ba 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 malu at a logo han mai ba han hamutuk. <Hebrew> <speaking in Hebrew> Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: Welcome back. Thanks for tuning into the Future Positive podcast. We'll be back next week with a new episode. If you enjoy the show or have a crazy idea for a future episode, tell us what you think on social. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as at XPRIZE. This podcast comes from XPRIZE, a global future positive movement of over 1 million people and rising, delivering radical breakthroughs for the benefit of humanity. Sign up to join us and support the movement that is making change in the world 10 times faster. Whether it's lending a hand, a dollar, or an idea, we all have a role to play in making the future a better place. XPRIZE, crazy ideas since 1994. Learn more at xprize.org. See you next week. Botox Cosmetic, Auto botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.
5: For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com